Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hello. Did you know that you're not a very smart person? I'm not I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just telling you kind of the topic of today. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I am Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. And we're bringing it to you. We're trying to make you a little smarter. Today is going to blow your mind how we do that. Before we get into that, guys, I want to say be our friend. Befriend us. Check us out on Facebook, just Smart People Podcast. It's It's a small step that you can take to help us out, and we appreciate it. So now, now we're going to get into what we talk about today, and I'm going to let Roach take it over. Sure. Today, we're interviewing author David McRaney, who wrote the book, You Are Not So Smart. I was See, I wasn't telling you guys you're not smart. I was just, it was a lead-in. Yeah. That's I, what they call it in the biz. I don't trust them. But David is a journalist who loves psychology, technology, and the internet. And, you know, he's a young guy. He's a lot like Chris and I. He likes the same things. He's an avid gamer. Renaissance man, if you will. Yes, and he's got a website out there called youarenotsosmart.com. You can find out information of his book, different articles that he's written. He's actually got a really cool trailer on there about procrastination. We posted it to the Smart People Podcast website and to our Facebook page. Head on over there and check it out. That trailer actually is really awesome. This guy, I had so much fun on this interview. It's it's like right up my alley. I freaking love the psychology stuff because he takes every interesting thing. You would have to sit through like eight years of psychology classes just to you know, learn the stuff that he points out in this book. Yeah, he you know, he takes what is it? Like 45, 46 different 45, yeah. different things in aspects of psychology and how your brain works and he writes, you know, 5, 10 page stories and explanations of of what those things are and it's you know it's a quick read it's an awesome book it kind of it kind of like gives you a little insight into why you do the things you do i came away slightly depressed 
but also I kind of enjoyed it because you realize how much is out of your hands. Like it's out of your control. All the thinking you do might not really be necessary. So anyways, here, I'm going to give you guys just a quick little idea of what his book is about. So number 28, he, he starts all the chapters off like this. He says, the misconception. And the misconception is you evaluate yourself based on past successes and defeats. Now, the truth really is you excuse your failures and see yourself as more successful, more intelligent, and more skilled than you are. And it's pretty funny. He, he starts off the chapter saying, for a long time, people believed that everyone had low self-esteem, inferiority complexes, etc., but research over the last 50 years reveals something kind of different. Day to day, you think you are awesome, or at least far more awesome than you actually are. And this is a good thing because self-esteem is mostly self-delusion, but it serves a purpose. You're biologically driven to think of highly of yourself in order to avoid stagnation. So, I mean, that's just an example of one of the things he talks about. And then he'll spend four pages or so explaining the science behind it in a, in a method that makes you think and you realize you do it every day, these things. Yeah, it's, it's funny with this book because as I was reading it, I would get through one chapter and I'd be like, mind blown, amazing. <laughs> and then the next chapter, I was like, holy cow, I think that same thing. It's absolutely amazing. This was one of those books that when we got, I you know had a strong debate with Chris whether we should keep this or give them away to our listeners. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we both had that thought. And ultimately, the listeners won. So stay tuned and you'll figure out how to get a copy of his book. You are not so smart. Yeah. And he got the idea to write this book. He started the website first and it got unprecedented popularity. And it's because everybody kind of wants to know why they do what they do. And I mean, that's the beauty behind psychology, at least in my mind. So we're going to turn it over to David and uh, you're going to learn why you're not so smart, but how you can change that. Okay. That's the silver lining. You can change it or at least accept it. And at least try not to be as gullible towards advertisements and things like that. It's really good. Enjoy David as he talks about his book, You Are Not So Smart. I, I noticed that you actually have a blog of the same name, youarenotsosmart.com. So right. it, it seems you started to write there first prior to writing for the book. How did you come up with the idea for the book? And then how did you, you know, come up with the idea for, for writing for the blog as well? Um, well, I never actually thought this would be a book. Uh, it was just a, a fun side project. Um, I work in new media and I've been a journalist for a while. And when I was in college, I thought I was going to be a psychologist for the first two years. So uh, I studied a lot of psychology, had a lot, took a lot of classes, had um, lots of notes and lots of things that I remember I could remember popping out to that uh, stood out to me, things that gave me these uh, the greatest epiphanies, always tended to be the things that knocked me off my pedestal or threw me for a loop. So um, those were also the things that I would bring up at parties or long trips, uh, much to the chagrin of my friends. Being a Debbie Downer with psychology, I learned quickly wasn't a good way to keep friends or have people help you move. But I thought it was, it was still fun stuff, and I wanted to write about it in a way that was fun and interesting and not so um, purely academic. It had a lot of um, real-world examples, and at first the blog started out as just being um, one of those blogs that points to interesting things around the internet, but the more I wrote about it, the more I learned about it, the more I started trying to fill out the blogs and make them long, uh, the blog entries, make them longer, have more research, point to more studies, and that has led to um, the popularity 
of the blog, and that led to um, some offers to turn it into a book. And, and so the book is sort of um, about half of it is the blog, uh, but expanded, revised, uh, polished up, re-researched, that sort of thing. And the other half is completely new material that I um, I went and researched and wrote about just for the book. David, I, I got to say first that I absolutely love your book. I'm currently considering getting my master's in psychology, and it's basic. your book is basically a conglomeration of everything that's interesting, in my opinion at least, <laughs> about the way we think and things like that. So just wanted to let you know that up front. Oh, thanks, man. No problem. And again, the book is called You Are Not So Smart, which is catchy. And on the front, it talks about, you know, why you have too many friends on Facebook and just a lot of relevant things. So the first thing I want to ask you is, you know, in your book, you talk about 48 misconceptions most people have about our way of thinking as humans. And basically, this comes across as 48 mistakes we make on a daily basis. And as I mentioned, I, I love the book, but it kind of depressed me because... <laughs> You realize how flawed we are. I, I wanted to ask you, why are we so flawed? I mean, if we're this fantastic creature, why are we given so many problems? And then are these actual problems or are these just survival mechanisms that are no longer relevant? It's a, it's a mix of a lot of different things. Uh, one definitely uh, is that these are um, a lot of this stuff is pattern recognition that has served, served us well in the best uh, situations. It's uh, recognizing the agency behind um, things that may not have any agency at all. Then a lot of the things are things that were evolutionarily sound as strategies of thinking, strategies of perception, but now in modern, um, you know, barring a zombie apocalypse or a worldwide food shortage or something, we don't use these things as much as we would need to, uh, as much as we used to. So um, a lot of that stuff goes, is falls into that. And the other stuff that uh, I write about, the biases and uh, the heuristics, these are more often the brain sacrificing um, accuracy for speed, and which is something we tend to do a great deal. And that also, I guess, is evolutionary. If you think about it, it has served us well coming up um, up to this point. I do avoid prescriptive advice in the book. Um, for one thing, I'm just not qualified to give it. And for the, for the other, um, the point I'm trying to make is that you're unaware of how unaware you are, and you're the unreliable narrator in the story of your life. And that means you're naturally hindered in the thinking in certain ways and um, not in others. And the world around us, not just uh, the grand scale of uh, politics and technology and everything, and but also on our personal lives, it's... Um, the world, the world we live in is a product of dealing with those delusions and not necessarily overcoming them. And I think it would be, um, we'd be better served if we child-proofed our homes and child-proofed our lives against these delusions instead of trusting ourselves to be able to overcome them. Because if we make it difficult for children to harm themselves instead of trying to just talk them uh, some sense into them and we outsmart them, then we also could probably outsmart our future selves in the same way. So I'm saying... You wouldn't build a car for a person with four legs, and so let's not base our decisions on the idea that that there are people who aren't greedy, who aren't procrastinators, who want who will um, abstain from sex just because they should, or who will save for retirement just because they should. My philosophy, and you can take it or leave it. This is just the way I look at it: is like you can, you can, we should base our decisions, laws, and policies on our real selves, and um, not our better angels. And we should attempt to uh, change and uh, use science to do that, but recognize that that's a slow-going process. So you have a, a trailer for your book, I, I guess you would call it a trailer, on, on YouTube and on your site, and it talks about procrastination. 
And I mean, Chris will completely agree with me on this. And I'm one of the biggest procrastinators and I never really knew why. And your explanation of the now you versus the future you really cleared that up for me. Could you go ahead and, you know, kind of explain to our listeners what you meant by that? When I knew that I had gotten a book deal, I knew that my own procrastination was going to be the one thing I would have to overcome. And I had uh, all these preconceived notions about what procrastination was. And I thought, you know, let's just, why not just use that as a topic and let's dive into it. And um, when I was digging up all the studies about procrastination, I realized it kept coming back to me that it wasn't laziness. It was more um, not having an uh, adequate strategy to deal with your future self. And I use future self, present self to describe something that psychologists call present bias. Present bias is when you um, assume that the person you are now, all the wants and desires and the um, and the failings and the and the um, intentions that you have at this very moment are going to be the same ones you have in a week or a month or when you get off work today. And um, it's just not true. You know, um, we are very influenced by our environment. We're very influenced by what is um, affecting us from, from minute to minute. And uh, it feels like we're a consistent person, but we tend to change over time. So the study that uh, really made that make sense to me was a study um, into how people I, I used Netflix as my example um, because I know that my Netflix queue is, is always chock full of stuff that I should be watching, but that I uh, sacrifice every night for uh, stuff that's fun and uh, or stuff that I just saw in the list and I don't I go for it instead of something in the queue. Um, the the study was um, they had to pick three movies to watch over the course of three days, uh, like one movie today and then two days another and then a couple days another. And they gave them this bank of movies they had to pick from. And some of them were um, lowbrow. And this is the scientist talking. Uh, some were lowbrow and some were highbrow. The lowbrow ones were things like The Mask or Speed. And the highbrow ones were things like um, The Piano or Schindler's List. Now, everyone picked the highbrow movie as one of their three. Or more often than not, they would. But they would always pick it as the third movie. So it was one of those things with like, I know this is nutritious and good for me, but I would rather have a candy bar right now. And... When they would change the study to say, let's pick a, a movie, you have to watch all three movies back to back, people tended to uh, not even pick Schindler's List anymore. They would just pick three candy bars. And that's something that we as human beings are all succumbed to. It's called, it's called a time inconsistency. We think that we, in the future, we're going to be really awesome and good to ourselves and we're going to eat the salad, but when we get there, we eat the chocolate cake. And it's not really a weakness. It's just a we. It's just a failure to think about thinking. The other great example that really drives it home is the Mitchell experiments, where they um, they had children look at. They gave them a marshmallow, and they said uh, they also gave them a bunch of other treats too. But the marshmallow is the one that's the most interesting. They would give them this giant marshmallow, and these are little little children, and they would say, "Okay, you can have two marshmallows. We'll give you this one and another if you can wait a certain amount of time, like five minutes, you know." Uh, I'm going to walk out of the room, and then when I come back, if the marshmallow is still there, you get to. Well, not all the kids could take it. A lot of kids, as soon as, before the experiment even touched the doorknob, they ate the marshmallow. But what was more interesting was the difference between the two kids, the two groups of kids who were trying not to eat the marshmallow. Some of them stared at it and uh, smelled it and licked it and thought about it. And the other group of kids, they would spin around in a chair, and they would bang their head against the table, um, they'd slap their face, they'd sing little songs. They would do everything they could to not think about the marshmallow. Now, 
even though the study was more about um, the delayed gratification, uh, and the study shows that the uh, over time the people, the kids who could delay their gratification were the ones who ended up having better jobs and careers and better marriages and making more money and all that kind of stuff, less likely to be drug addicts and such. But the part that I found most interesting was that um, how did they delay gratification? Well, the the trick was not to stare at the marshmallow because you can't trust yourself to stare at it. You had to come up with strategies to avoid staring at it. So knowing that we take the sure thing in the moment and knowing that we have to outsmart ourselves because we can't trust our future self to uh, give us what we want. I talk about procrastination in the sense of uh, having a strategy to outsmart your future self. It's a person in the future that's going to be you and you can't trust them. Now, that's that's awesome. I really wish that I, – I know you said you didn't uh... – put any like prescribing notions in there, but for this chapter, at least just how to overcome that, because I'm terrible with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, that's the, that's my strategy. Like I know I can't trust myself to start playing video games or getting on social media when I have a deadline. So I use uh, it's called Premax principle where you, um, if you do something that you, before you can do something you want to do, you have to do something that you don't want to do. And, uh, and, you know, they make programs that will turn off the Internet for a certain period of time or they make programs that will uh, limit certain websites. And you can go that far if you have to. But it's all about thinking about thinking and thinking about your future self. If you made John download a program that turned off the Internet, he would literally cease to exist. So I don't <laughs> think he, can, yeah, he I, can quite go that far. I actually have one installed on my computer and I used it once and it just, I mean, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. <laughs> and I hated that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But anyways, David, um, you mentioned when talking about procrastination, how we are affected by our environment more than we realize. And you you tend to um, dive into that topic throughout the book. And one of those you talk about is called priming, which is uh, I, I'll let you kind of explain it a little better. But one of the things I took away from that is you say if you neglect your personal space and allow clutter and chaos to creep in, it will affect you and allow clutter into your life. And we've talked in the past how this idea relates to making your bed every morning and how that leads to a more productive, peaceful day. So can you describe priming? And then do you think things like making your bed do lead to a more productive day? And what is the science behind this? Well, priming is one of the creepiest things that science has, has revealed. Um, and it, it, the easiest way to think of it is, we, if you go to work in flip-flops and shorts versus going to work in a, in a nice fitted suit with a, with a tie, um, does it affect your behavior? Do you become more professional when you wear professional clothes or do you wear professional clothes you know, to put out a sense of professionalism? The science says that um, priming is always affecting us, uh, maybe just a little bit here and there, but enough over time to really push our behaviors, really push our decisions to change the way we see the world. The study I that cracks me up in, in the, that I have in the book is they would have people, they would do some, they'd do a different study and then as a reward they'd be like, okay, here's some refreshments while we tally up the results and they would give you a, a crumbly, crumbly cookie. And um, what they were really doing is the, the scientists behind the mirror watching this person eat the crumbly cookie and the, as the table um, got peppered with crumbs, uh, they wanted to see how often would people clean up their mess. And they found that if there was a faint scent of cleaning um, uh, fluid in the room, a faint scent of some sort of cleaning product, people were much more likely to clean up their crumbs. They were primed by that smell to think, oh, yes, this is a clean place. Maybe I should keep it clean. In another study, they had people 
part of a study, they had to remember a sin from their past, remember something from their past they were ashamed of, something they uh, wished they could go back and change, something they regretted. And uh, they said in the study, they had to give people an opportunity to wash their hands before moving on to the next part of the study. Some people washed, some people didn't. And at the end of the study, they said, would you um, do a, a favor for the researcher? No more. You're not going to get any extra money or any extra points, but you, uh, this would be a great favor to us. You just have to do another study with us. So the people who did not wash their hands, they were um, like 75% more likely to say yes than the people who did wash their hands. And the idea of the researchers saying they had subconsciously, they didn't prime to think that they had cleaned away their sins and didn't need to do the favor to feel like they were um, good people to get rid of that nasty thought they got from the sin from their past. And other studies, and this has been in other books, and I, and I mentioned it briefly in mine, um, people, when people have to do word puzzles, and they'll say, uh, the study I talk about most, they do word puzzles that are related to, um, that have words in the word bank, like briefcase, fountain pen, stuff like that, uh, conference table. And then they have those people perform a negotiating task. The people who got neutral objects, like a whale and backpack, they would tend to be very fair in their negotiation. But the people who had uh, done word puzzles that had briefcases and fountain pens in them, they tended to be very aggressive and uh, tried to maximize their profit. And uh, because they had been primed, you know, every every object, every everything around you, every thought, every object, every uh, piece of entertainment, it's going to cause this cascade of associations throughout your brain. And that your brain, your brain sort of, um, it's like, flexing its muscles, getting ready to run, it already has a little bit of the information there ready to go, and, it's, and you think more quickly in the direction that you've already been primed to think. And um, we don't realize it. And this stuff actually works much better when we're unconsciously primed, but it's always uh, pushing us around and changing our behaviors. That is one of the, the creepier things in science. I mean, just to just to think that there are, you know, outside environments that that cause us to act and behave one way or another. I mean, you you take that into that that whole thing of this information getting into the wrong hands. You know, people <laughs> can do complete evil with it. Which you know, you you think about like commercials and and advertising and stuff like that, and you start to see that those right. things show up there. When the lady is making the the Rice Krispie treats with her mom and her and with her children, you know the. They're priming you to think about um, whenever you did stuff like that with your parents so that you will have a nice positive thought about the, the um, Rice Krispie Treats. Now, is that bad? I mean, you know, from um, from the you know the advertiser's perspective, uh, from the manufacturer's perspective, they're like, well, I mean, what's wrong with feeling good about things? So, yeah, it can go either way. You know, it, it just is. And I try to point that out a lot in the book, that these are just the way we are. And whatever positive or negative uh, results come from succumbing to these things or from using these things um that that's a, that's beside the point now you know last month was the anniversary of september 11th and there was a there was a lot of documentaries on about you know what people did on that day uh that were in the towers and how calm they were you know coming down the stairs and all that kind of stuff i mean of course you had the people that did have to rely on instincts um but one of the chapters that you write about is the normalcy bias and this mm -hmm. is this is you know our brain acting like things are are normal instead of panicking. And you know on nine eleven, the perfect example was people were walking down the stairs, and you said they were basically begging the world to return to normalcy or to return to normal by engaging in acts of normalcy. Right. Um, can you explain to our uh, listeners really what the the normalcy bias is? 
we all know about freezing whenever we're scared, and that's uh, called bradycardia. That's uh, pretty much all mammals and, well, almost all creatures do this. This is when uh, you're just trying to avoid being uh, eaten uh, because, you know, that if you freeze, you can, it's the whole Jurassic Park thing, you can freeze. So people do that. They can even induce that in the lab by just showing you pictures of uh, injured people. People, their muscles will tense, their heart rate will plummet. So they're they're preparing to freeze in case this is predation, or at least that's the speculation. It's the, why you're freezing. And there's also thanatosis, which is when animals pretend to be dead by freezing. So those two things aside, what I'm talking about is normalcy bias, and that is when you're in a, in a situation that's called negative panic by first responders and uh, and people who worry about traffic flow when people are escaping a, a stadium or whatever. Um, in anything, uh, any really giant, ambiguous, bigger-than-life uh, emergency, um, you know, mile-wide tornado, hurricane, ship sinking, building on fire, uh, flood, a lot of people mill around and don't do anything, and they keep searching for meaning and searching for um, to get enough evidence to get alarmed and to, and to pass the point where they uh, will be able to escape. A big, scary, dangerous, and life-threatening thing, uh, when it comes around, the first thing we want to do is believe that things are not dangerous or scary or life-threatening. And by attempting to convince ourselves that everything is okay, um, we engage in, what, and like, like you said, we engage in acts of normalcy. So people will tend to just uh, walk around and go, hey, what's going on? Light a cigarette, talk, make a phone call, talk to a friend and family. Keep trying to gather information because you really do want to get alarmed in case it is real. But people don't, you don't just jump to the alarm state you move slowly through a series of steps. And if enough things make you alert and you get enough warnings, or, or uh, and I talk about in the book that if you've done enough drills and you've trained yourself, you will go through that uh, series of checking, uh, that series of, of uh, engaging in, in acts of normalcy. You will go through that really quickly and you'll go to the alarm state faster. You can't stop yourself from doing the whole cognition, perception, comprehension thing. But you can go through the steps faster because you can you prepared yourself by going through a um, a practice run enough time. That's why fire drills actually do work. So normalcy bias is a weird thing that comes around people um, in terrible events when you have every reason to think otherwise. You will just go well. Maybe it's not that bad. Maybe I could stick around. Maybe I could ride this out. And um, people who do that sometimes they, they face really dire consequences. Now, has there been any research done, or have we figured out? why those first responders that are the ones, you know, the first to react, what goes through their mind? I mean, you said like they go through all the steps, I guess, more quickly than others. But is there something that just, you know, kicks in in these people's brains that tells them I need to react and I need to do it right now? Um, I don't know. Uh, I am. I mean, I haven't done any research into specifically what the first responders are thinking. I know that the person I talk about in the, in the book, uh, a researcher named Johnson, uh, he talks about how um, training over and over again tends to um, make what, you, what would seem like a complex situation to a person who's never trained seem something rote and simple. And, you know, it, it just being their job to go straight to an alarm state, straight to a state of action. It's like um, Johnson in the book talks about it's like playing an instrument. So it goes, you go from a you know, if I just hand you a guitar and say, here, play a C chord. No, look, here's how it works, okay? You put your finger here, you put your finger here, and you may have never picked up a guitar, and it seems like the most complicated thing in the world, and it hurts. But if I hand you a guitar after showing it to you and you practice for five minutes, it suddenly starts to unfold and, and seem simpler. And so Johnson says that um, first responders, they train so much that um, they're not afraid of the situation. They know what to look for. They they move quickly through the steps, unlike other people who are, uh, you know, that day they just wanted to sit, sit in the office and play solitaire on the computer, and then all of a sudden, what is this? 
So I don't know for sure, but that's my speculation on it. You know, you talk a lot about the conscious versus the unconscious mind or brain. That's kind of what drives a lot of our problems is we don't realize what we're thinking or what's happening. And sometimes it seems like you might want to err on the side of the unconscious because this is the part of our brain that's had the longest time to evolve and make the most adaptations. It appears that it may be more trustworthy. If this is the case, is it a better idea to go with your gut or your intuition when it comes to making decisions? Are are we more easily deceived when we move the thought process to our conscious mind? You know, I talk, I I try not to to step on, um, uh, Jonah Lair's toes too much in the book because uh, he he wrote the greatest book on this topic that I've read and that is uh, how we decide and and he talks a lot about how um, you know the unconscious mind is the emotional mind has had a lot longer time to evolve than the um, the the rational mind and 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 so and then you also have people like Malcolm Gladwell who um, who say that you know you should really really trust your gut reactions but I think that the the science is not 100% in favor of that because there are many times when the when your gut reaction is 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 really good uh and it's something you can trust but it's usually after you've done a lot of research or you have a lot of experience in what it is that you are um you're you're contemplating uh when you're a complete um noob about something when you're completely uh novice in the situation your gut reaction is uh it could it's going to be based off of something else and it's, it could be priming it could be um any number of the biases that I talk about in the book it could be based off of faulty information or, or false premises. So you have to be careful with when trusting your gut 100%, especially in a very novel situation. Now, you know, if, um, if somebody throws a snake in your lap and you go with your gut and you say, here, and you throw, you throw it away, uh, that's good. That, that's all those, uh, all the things I write about serving you well. But if you, um, uh, this is, for instance, um, Stephen Levitt uh, in Freakonomics talks about how people aren't very good at judging um, the statistical danger of something like a gun versus a swimming pool because we might think that a gun is more dangerous, but statistically your a child is much more likely to be harmed by a swimming pool than a gun in a home that has both. So um, yes, going your, with your gut can be a good thing, and but it also could be really faulty. and it, It's situational and it's nuanced. You also talk about how we do things to create a positive self-image for ourselves. Why do you think that we are so scared of, you know, uh, having either having a negative self-image or even not knowing things. Like we're so terrified we'll make things up even if it's not right. And it's to get us to a point where we trust ourselves and our thought process. Why do you think that is? Based off of what I have researched, you know, I see that it comes up over and over again in the literature that we are very, very concerned with um, self-esteem. And we use a number of things to keep that self-esteem rolling along and at, uh, at its maximum power. Self-esteem plays right into self-efficacy, and self-efficacy makes us attempt things over and over again, even if we're failing to the point that we eventually will do something, we'll eventually succeed. People who give up too soon uh, may be people who don't believe in their efficacy, and it's because their self-esteem may be not as pumped up and out of control as others. It can, it can obviously go too far, but a healthy dose of self-delusion is uh, sometimes necessary to get out of bed in the morning to think that you can fight back the endless forces uh, that are pushing against you whenever you try to make your way through the world. You know, we each have a self-esteem model, 
that is built around whatever it is we believe is, is, is important to our peers and to ourselves. It could be based off morality. It could be based off of education, intelligence, um, athleticism. Whatever it is that we, that we use as a, as a metric for our own self-esteem, we tend to see ourselves as above average in that thing. And when we are threatened by the world or by our own observations uh, in, and we see that maybe that's not so true, uh, we'll work pretty diligently to bring ourselves back up above the water. It's, I don't think it's always a, a, a bad thing. It's, um, you know, most animals just do what they do. We have that extra metacognition where we think about our thinking. And when we do that, when we look back on our own behaviors, we tend to look back on them as an outside observer. And when we write that story about our lives, we inflate it, we embellish it to make it even better and more interesting than maybe it was in the moment. And this probably all plays back into keeping that self-esteem high so we'll feel effective. And self-effectiveness really serves us well. Now, David, just from you know hearing you speak, it, it sounds like you you enjoy tech and, and gaming you know, with, with the term noob, that's, that's definitely one of those, <laughs> those gaming terms that have been coined as of, as of recently. But one of the, one of the sections in your book is, is brand loyalty and how yeah, you mentioned yeah. how men will argue about anything to protect their egos, even how, if it's the smallest, you know, the smallest thing. And there tends to be a lot of brand loyalty in expensive tech toys. So mm -hmm. I have to ask you this because Chris and I have this eternal debate going on all the time. Are you a Mac or a PC guy? <laughs> um, I uh, have uh, in my day job as a, as a guy who works in the media, I use PCs. And, and, and when I write and I do creative things, I tend to use Mac. I have Mac at home. But then I have a, a – my entertainment system is run through a uh, home theater PC that is a PC. Yep. So I kind of go back and forth. When I want to, it depends on what I want to do with it, and I am, I totally get the reality distortion field. I've seen people go from uh, uh, proponents of let's build a gaming machine out of a pizza box to talking about intuitive user interfaces for, uh, overnight after buying a, a Mac, and it's hard not to do, you know, when you drop that much money on something to not defend it and defend the philosophy behind it. I think that's what um, one of the great uh, genius things that was done either by Steve Jobs or by the marketing team there uh, in Apple is that they allow you to buy into the philosophy of the, of the brand before you buy into the utility of the product. And I'm one of the people who I believe that everybody has a reality distortion field. And it's one of those things where they just sort of embraced it and said, sure, okay, Steve Jobs has a reality distortion field. Do you like it? If you like it, then let's put out advertising that, that points you know to that. So he shows the the PC guy and the Mac guy standing side by side. And for some people, that's offensive. And for some people, that's very uh, incentivizing because they're like, hey, I'm not like that guy in the cubicle. I want to be the uh, the artist. I want to be the whatever. So um, I would say I'm a little of both. But lately, uh, the more I devote time to writing, the more I've been a Mac guy. I'm the same way. I've got you know my home theater PC hooked up. I've built my own PC for gaming. And when I want to do creative things, whether it be podcasting or digital editing of photos, videos, etc., it's it's Mac. And I've I've been trying to explain to Chris that it's just <laughs> it's definitely superior in in that sense for the for doing creative things. I like I like to be able to hit Control C, and I like my <laughs> Microsoft Excel. Okay, that's just what I do. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, use what you use what works for you, and uh, don't get too caught up in the war with other people over what's better. Because I mean, it's uh, it's okay to like something for for an irrational reason. The 
I try to tell people that you like everything for an irrational reason. So there's no reason to suddenly stop now and go, I, <laughs> I like PCs because they're, you can get in there and fiddle with the pieces. Well, yeah, that's good. And if, if that's what you want to do, then please do buy that. Yeah. Well, I guess if your book teaches us anything, it's, uh, it might even be just not to think because I'm going to get it wrong anyways. So, like, <laughs> right. I just hope I it mean, gives you uh, a humility. You know, let's just, I think that we are connected not only in what we're capable of, but also what we tend to stumble over. Let's not, I just keep trying to tell people, let's not create decisions or policies that point to, you know, um, when it comes to like um, trying to create policies around abstinence only programs, you know, that they all assume that people are going to be uh, going to look at the, st the statistics and facts and go, I probably should abstain from having sex right. before marriage. Uh, right. And that negate that just ignores the the fact that uh, people aren't going to do that. They're not going to logically look at the situation and go, I should probably avoid this. So you know, just accept the fact that we're all flawed. And then if we know what those flaws are going in, then we can have an even better a sense of um, ourselves and a better sense of co have a better common sense. David, thank you so much. I mean, it was great talking to you. The book was fantastic to read. Again, the book is You Are Not So Smart. And I just wanted to give you a chance to um, direct our listeners to your website or anything else you might be working on right now. Uh, yeah, everything is up at um, youarenotsosmart.com. Um, some stuff for the book is on there. I've written a lot of stuff since the book. Uh, I keep getting better at this and writing longer and longer pieces that take uh, longer, much longer to read and write. <laughs> uh, and you can always go to youarenotsosmart.com and check them out. Great. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the show. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, best of luck in the future. Thanks a bunch. Welcome back. All right, guys. Came up with a pretty good idea for how we're going to give away David's book. Free giveaway. You are not so smart. So, Chris, I came across an email today to Smart People Podcast. It was from Google. And they were saying that our Google Voice number was going to expire in seven days unless we used it. So this got me to thinking, why don't we give away two copies of David's book to the best messages that are left to us on our Google Voice number? So your guy's job is to call into the number 209-920-7678 and leave us a message. You won't talk to anybody. It'll be an automated prompt. And, you know, just go ahead, leave a message. Tell us why you like the show, who you want to hear, what your favorite part of the interview was, really anything. And we'll pick our two favorite messages, we'll play them on the air, and we'll send you guys books. I love this idea. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. So the number again is 209-920-7678. That's 7678. I think we learned something in marketing class where you have to say something three times for it to stick in. I don't know, but whenever you feel like it, if you're just pissed off or something, just give us a call and leave us a message. This will be hilarious. It'll be another way we kind of get in touch with you and we'll play a couple on the air in the future. It'll be a great time. Also, other ways to get in touch with us, Facebook, Smart People Podcast. Just go click the like button. We're trying to get that community going. We're putting some new pictures up. It's a lot of fun. Check us out on iTunes and our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Don't forget Amazon widget at the top and bottom of the page when you're doing your holiday shopping. Just click on the widget. brings you to Amazon. Any purchase you make gives us a kickback. We appreciate it. We appreciate you listening to the show, guys. We're trying to give you some books and some free stuff. Give us a call. Leave us a message. 209-920-7678. That's four times.
See you guys later. Psychology. <laughs>